through the the pandemic, the government was involved in a, a federal government, a great deal of fiscal stimulus. So the, the dollars that we had available to help mitigate the impact. So that had this impact of, of priming the economy, um, but that won't be sustained. Well, those are the dulcet tones of Ben Noble, the director of Seattle's new Office of Economic and Revenue Forecast, the Earth. And some of these forecasts may make, may make you want to say earth when you look at them. The city council considering a lot of that this week on budgetary concerns. Some investments in the Office of Housing, too. Also a continuing battle over police hiring incentives. The city attorney getting in a fight with the municipal court. Whew, we've got a lot to cover this week on Seattle News, Views and Brews, your coffee break political podcast. I'm Brian Callanan. I'm a host on Seattle Channel. The views expressed here are my own. And I am joined by David Croman of the Seattle Times and David Great to be with you, as always. Good to see you're back in the office there. I did want to talk about this, though. It sounds like some trouble in the workplace here. The Times posted that spoiler headline about Top Chef last week. <laughs> and, and you didn't even see the episode, man. What what legal recourse are you seeking right now? Against <laughs> I know, player? right. I don't know if OSHA handled these this kind of emotional injury. <laughs> it's a lie. It's a lie. So. <laughs> Hang in there. Hang in there, yeah. man. I'm always with you. Always with you. Thanks, David, for joining me. Thanks also to everybody listening. And thanks, thanks especially to our patrons. Really want to encourage more of you to who listen to start supporting the show. I know you're out there. You can get a coveted Seattle News Views Brew coffee mug if you pledge at the $10 a month level. Very much appreciate that. Very big deal, folks. You'll be featured in our mugshot of the week segment. This week, the special honor goes to Joe. Looks like an action photo with the mug on the dashboard of his car. Please drive safely, Joe, and thank you very much for your support. Everyone else, be cool like Joe. Please do support this podcast on Patreon. We are on Converge Media 2. The video of the podcast airs on Converge Wednesday nights at 7. All right, let's get this going with right here, right now. Well, there's a lot going on in Seattle City Council land this week. Homelessness Committee is meeting, getting an update on what the Regional Homelessness Authority is doing. Also, Public Safety and Human Services. They've got a meeting coming up, too. We're going to talk a little bit about what that committee is doing in just a little bit. But I wanted to start out with finance and housing here, David. They're meeting on Wednesday. They have a few interesting things on the docket, like what's next with the American Recovery Plan Act funding, the ARPA, that we've been talking about over the past couple of years. So this is money that's basically running out at the end of this year or so. And David, I'm not an economist. I know you're not either. But the word I keep coming back to and looking through this material for the city council is uncertainty. We've got Seattle, that, like a lot of other big cities, in the middle of an economic rebound. But inflation is jumping right now at higher than expected numbers. The war in Ukraine, which is a terrible loss of human life. Definitely want to keep that in perspective. But it's a real wild card in terms of our economy. Just some thoughts about this. Yeah, in Seattle, you know, for the last, what is it, 10 years at this point, Seattle's budget has grown, you know, in large part because of um, real estate related taxes yeah. and mm-hmm. business taxes. So, right. you know, every time there's new construction and new purchasing of uh, real estate and commercial properties, then Seattle gets a windfall. But you know, I think in addition to, you know, inflation and Ukraine, you know, there's questions about the commercial real estate market and development, you know, as people, you know, I'm, I'm in the office today, but um, let's say it's about a quarter full, you know, it's, yeah. it's uh, a lot of questions about, and, you know, my colleague Paul Roberts had a story that said, I think the estimate is around 30%, 33% full right now. Um, and so, you know, this question around uh, that kind in, of in terms of offices downtown, yeah, or yeah, yeah, as far as workers going back to the office, yeah, right, right. You know, a lot of question around demand for um, new development, and yeah. um, you know, I, I think it 
anyone who has lived through the past two years would um, probably be probably a little bit of a fool to guess exactly what the economic picture is going to look like in a year or two from now. Yeah. I, I guess the other economic issue that I think about that won't really be going away for the city anytime soon is a budget gap of about $150 million. So, David, I'm looking at these Finance and Housing Committee meetings, which are happening this week for the council, almost like a preview of coming attractions here, because you've got Mayor Harrell saying he wants to use additional revenue from Councilmember Mosqueda's signature legislation, the Jumpstart Payroll Tax, to help plug that general fund hole. And we know the council earmarked this money for housing, small businesses, the Green New Deal, things of that nature. I'm just trying to look ahead here, David. What sort of conflict do you see on the horizon as the council tries to dig in its heels on those earmarks there and those priorities while the mayor pushes to get that excess revenue in the general fund? Some some thoughts about that? <laughs> well, it feels sort of like deja vu. I mean, there yeah. was a, this fight last year for the same not exactly, maybe not exactly the same, but sort of this fight over exactly how this money was going to be spent. Right. Um, and yeah, I mean, the council, uh, despite the recent election, is still a progressive council and um, passed that legislation sort of with the express, express intent of spending it on more housing and, um, you know, affordability questions. And so, um, yeah, I anticipate that this will continue to be the same kind of fight that we saw last year between Mayor Durkin and this and the council. Um, Mayor Durkin wanted to do certain things and her budget to, to backfill certain revenues. And, you know, the at the time, the mayor's office basically said, well, you know, these are basically all budgeting tricks and mm -hmm. um, it all kind of ends up in the same place anyway. But mm -hmm. uh, the, the council didn't really buy that. Um, no. And, um, y you know, at the end of the day, it is... Uh, I mean, this is always this is kind of always an interesting thing in governing in general, which is um, how much how much are you kind of um, claiming money out into the future? Or how much are you yes. kind of dictating how a revenue source is going to be fund, funded after you've left? Mm. And the council is clearly sort of trying to put its foot down and say, you know, this money should be for these specific things. And, yeah. um, you know, whereas the mayor is a mayor is always going to. You know, it's it's the the mayor is always the first draft of the budget, and oh yeah, uh, I've never covered a mayor that didn't kind of look for any kind of little loophole or opportunity mm -hmm. to spend more money in the places where he or she wanted. Right, right. Those are the different priorities out there, and it's so interesting too to look at JumpStart, which was so reviled by so many different people in the Seattle yeah. area. Now has turned into this this money maker that a lot of different political leaders are looking to get in on. So uh, we're, we're going to be hearing a little bit about this. There's a general fund balancing discussion happening with this meeting later this week too. And a lot of other things going on, including, I found this very interesting, David. There's a lot of talk in this finance and housing committee about the office of housing, a discussion here to add 14 full-time employees to the office of housing. I thought this was interesting because the OH budget over the past eight years has actually quadrupled, but staffing has only increased by 23%, and there's definitely a lot of need there. I'm paying close attention to this one because I think this is the first big project from Michael Winkler-Chin, the new interim director of the Office of Housing. She, of course, was the head of the Chinatown ID Public Development Authority for the past 12 years. So overall, I'm, I'm seeing this adding new staff and acknowledgement that a lot more people are looking for help with housing. Funding's a lot more complicated, a lot more focus on communities like Chinatown ID that need some specialized help here. But just some ideas about this, David, ramping up, adding more employees to the Office of Housing. I think this is a big priority for the city, and they're trying to recognize how to deal with more people, I guess. Yeah, I think that's right. And, you know, the Seattle Housing Levy um, has, has, gotten, that, yeah. has gotten a lot bigger um, mm -hmm. in certain years. And so, you know, the, the department does have more funding in that respect. Um, and then, you know, I mean, anytime um, 
you know, uh, money is coming in from grant, like the state or the federal government, it often goes to the Office of Housing. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, undoubtedly, that office is not what it used to be. It is it is bigger. Um, and in the same sense that 10 years ago, 15 years ago, um, the conversation around how to fund and set yeah. up affordable housing was not nearly as uh, big in the city as it is today. So, yeah. Um, yeah, I think that's just a reflection of kind of the, the city that we're in right now, which is yeah. recognizing that um, an office of housing for city of Seattle is, is quickly becoming one of the kind of biggest and most important departments. Agreed. And, and there's a lot laid on top of that, David, in thinking about this. So this is, you mentioned the housing levy, which is actually up for renewal next year. And mm. when I think about the year 2023, it is going to be nuts politically because we're talking about the housing levy. We're talking about seven city council district seats that are going to be on the ballot there. Plus, with redistricting, it's going to get a little weird with the boundaries getting drawn up. Who knows who's going to be where? And then on top of that, we've got the social housing bill that we're talking about this year, possibly mucking up the works here, too. I just look ahead at this housing levy, which has always enjoyed very good support from Seattle voters. Do you think it's going to see some challenges next year trying to get past voters? Or what do you think about that? I, I don't know. I mean, my my kind of lens is always to assume that the same thing that has always happened will happen again until yes. I'm proven wrong. It's like <laughs> um, me missing putts on the golf course. Yeah, keep going. <laughs> right, right. Uh, and so, you know, I, I have seen no evidence of a drop off in support for um, housing levies. I mean, I think since I've been here, there have been two that they've passed and both yeah. have been, I think maybe the second one was even bigger than the, the first one. Uh, right. And, and, you know, I mean, this is, we're talking about, we're talking about, you know, housing for people between, you know, 30 and 80% area median income. I mean, this right. is like, this is not, this has not been the most of controversial of things to support. Um, there's not a lot of pushback I've seen against probably not yeah. building new affordable housing. Um, yeah. That's not to say it's going to be easy. I mean, there's there's this question around getting this money, you know, finding space and finding developers. And mm-hmm. I mean, it's a lot of work to get this money out the door. And there's going to be a lot of questions about implementation. But, right. you know, when it comes to basically any property tax levy, I don't remember the last time one failed in Seattle. And until one mm-hmm. does, I'm going to assume that they will all pass. Right, right. It, it's interesting because part of this discussion in the Finance and Housing Commission, uh, Committee this week is adding some new employees specifically to ramp up the efforts to advertise and really talk about the housing levy to work, uh, make sure to get it gets passed. Because I hear you, a lot of people have supported this over the past years, but you still got to get it passed and you got to get it on a ballot that's going to be very, very crowded next fall and get it through. So definitely something we're going to be keeping an eye on. And I wanted to talk about something else we're keeping an eye on, the battle over the best way to recruit police. This really continues for the city council. Council members Herbold and Nelson duking it out over hiring bonuses. You're going to hear the shouting and the shushing. Up next on Now Hear This. Okay, here we go. Public Safety Committee meeting last week. Councilmember Lisa Herbold was trying to move on after an hour-long discussion about a resolution from Councilmember Sarah Nelson regarding police hiring bonuses. We touched on this last week on the podcast, but Councilmember Herbold at this meeting was trying to wrap up the discussion. Councilmember Nelson was asking another council staffer to read what she's now calling an ordinance on this issue. Here's what it sounded like. We have two more items on our agenda, and so I would like to close debate. Thank you. Um, I actually do. I'm not, I'm sorry, with all due respect, this should be the job of public safety committee. And I do have an alternative resolute, uh, ordinance that, um, that I would like Allie to briefly speak at. Um, I, and I, and I 
am requesting as the chair of this committee um, to move on. And so with that, I'm closing debate on this issue. And thus the meeting continued. But David, this was a pretty chippy exchange between two council members who've known each other a long time as council members, sure, but before that as legislative assistants together at City Hall. What did you make of this back and forth? What do you expect to see as the Public Safety Committee continues to look at this? Councilmember Nelson and Councilmember Herbold really don't seem like they're on the same page. Yeah, I mean, my read on Councilmember Nelson so far is she is really, um, I, I think she's really doing what she feel like she feels like she was elected to do. Yeah. Um, you know, I think when uh, you, you, she was, she was, um, not often clear on specific policies on the campaign trail, but was fairly clear on the kind of council member that she wanted to be, you know, in a general mm-hmm. sense. And that included uh, kind of much more, you know, more investment in police. And um, I think that she is really the first council member. Cause you know, I mean, through the 2020 protests, there was a lot of kind of, you know, council members saying, uh, saying a lot of things that then maybe it was sort of difficult for them to back up later. And it, oh, yeah. it kind of created this really complicated paper trail for a lot of the council people for oh, like yeah. what D- they were yeah, trying to do. Defund the police by 50%, sure. Yeah. Right, but then kind of coming back and saying, yeah, right. you know, they didn't That's really want to really do that. Meant. And yeah. so mm-hmm. sort of trying to like balance the thing, the promises they made early mm-hmm. 2020 with some of the the investments that some of them actually do want to make in, in police now. Whereas Sarah Nelson is really the first council member since then that she she doesn't have that baggage right now. Yeah, she ran right. on a platform of hiring more cops. And so I think, mm-hmm. and, and doing certain things for, for business and, yeah. you know, love it or hate it. It is, um, I think so far she is making, um, she's, she's holding that viewpoint very strongly and, mm-hmm. you know, clearly um, ruffling the feathers of some of her callers or her colleagues in, in doing so. Absolutely. And just to review what's going on here, folks. So Councilmember Nelson is saying, let's take this additional money the SPD is going to have, maybe a little more than $4 million because they are not going to hit these hiring numbers they projected here. She wants to take that money, pump it into hiring bonuses. Now, the council put a proviso on that. They wanted to make sure the SPD wasn't overspending in any way. So that money is frozen right now. So we'll see what goes on. But Councilmember Herbold has a counterproposal. She's talking about a bill that says, okay, let's reallocate about $650,000. With that, we can hire a recruiter and still pay for relocation expenses for new hires here. Councilmember Nelson thinks that's too limiting. But David, where do you see the council landing on this debate about hiring bonuses specifically or relocation money or whatever you want to call it? I don't. I don't know where they where they end up landing. It's it's interesting. I mean, we've been talking about this now for a, a month, year, yeah. Or, but yeah, then you're even, right. Even before yeah. that, I mean, you're it was, right. You're right. It's kind of dates back to, um, uh, yeah, I think 2021 when there was mm-hmm. a lot of conversation around basically, you know, what do you do with this money that the Seattle Police Department is not spending on right. salaries because so many police officers have left. So, yeah. um, you know, even the fact that the council is uh, seriously considering and, and talking about putting in, um, you know, incentives to, to hire more police officers. I, you know, that's a fairly significant change from um, some of what we were hearing in 2020. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I think it probably, I think, you know, considering this council, it probably heads in some direction of kind of trying to thread the needle between yeah. spending money to, to recruit officers while, mm-hmm. um, you know, maybe pairing, you know, a lot of times when there's something like this, they where they feel like, they're sort of trying to satisfy multiple groups of people. They kind of pair them with things. So maybe mm-hmm. they hire recruiters, but then also spend money on more alternatives. To police or something alternatives. Like that. 
I was going to say because many many promises were made during the yeah. George Floyd uh, the the protest there, the BLM protest. A lot of promises made there, and I think a lot of council members are trying to come through with that. But then at the same time, the writing is on the wall. The SPD is is losing officers very very quickly here. So if the council doesn't do something that at least is some sort of signal, I guess, in, in a larger sense, that they support the police department and, and do it. And it's not that they haven't supported their hiring plans or whatever else, but I think there's this image out there, right or wrong, that the council is not supportive of the SPD. I, I, they need to try to stop that or change that narrative somehow. And, and that's a tough one. Yeah, I mean, and, and also at the same time, um, there are a lot of people who don't want them to, to True. change yeah. that narrative and that, yeah. that they're in a position. I mean, there's there's... <laughs> You know, frankly, a reason why, uh, when you look at polling or surveys um, that I've heard about, the council has has been polling kind of um, low lately because oh, yeah. I mean they have for a while, but partially because I think um, they are in this position where a lot of them are sort of trying to thread the needle between yeah. um, cert- on certain subjects. And yes, yeah, so nobody's I, get, happy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You get the sense that no one is really left all that happy, and so yeah. um, hmm. you know, again, I, I I go back to Councilmember Nelson. Um, y- you know, I. Uh, agree with or disagree with her, there's a certain power in having this um, clear, clear uh, kind of coming mandate in, right? yeah. in some ways of why she was elected. She just says exactly um, she can kind of hold the ground, her ground fairly clearly on this issue. Yeah. Yeah. Very interesting here. And talking a lot about uh, crime and safety and uh, public safety issues here. In, in case you missed it last week, city attorney Ann Davison is in a bit of a battle herself with the municipal court. Now she wants to deny these people who are on her list of so-called high utilizers of the justice system. She wants to deny them from community court, that option that they have currently. So these are people who have had 12 or more referrals from the SPD in the past five years. She doesn't want them to access this social service-based system that allows defendants to set up a plan for dealing with substance abuse and also requires them to do community service. So Damon Shadid is the judge. I've talked with him before. He presides over the community court. He's saying, wait a minute, This is a system we set up in 2019 using a lot of research from the state's pretrial reform task force, the Vera Institute, and now you want to deny it to this list of defendants? Davison's basically saying, yes, she wants the full municipal court now to reconsider this agreement about community court. David, this is a really interesting one for me, and I just want to get your take on what's next with this fight about just how punitive our city should be with people who've had these repeat misdemeanors. Yeah, this is this is interesting. I mean, I always preface these conversations with, with we should remember that Seattle City Attorney's Office and the Municipal Court just prosecute misdemeanors. So even if you That's were right. to bring down the heaviest hammer of the law on these folks, you're mm-hmm. looking at a maximum of 364 days. Right. Um, you know, most of the time, less than that. And so you're always left with this question of uh, if you choose the option of um, jail, there is a fairly clear date, not that far off, when the person will get out of jail, and you kind of have mm-hmm. to decide what you want to do then. Um, the the other the other piece that I, I find really interesting, and I, I think Erica Barnett had pointed this out, but mm-hmm. I think is worth considering is, um, you know, Washington State is under a, has a has a federal lawsuit called called True Blood, which basically says yeah. people who are determined um, not men, not competent to stand trial, Mentally so fit. basically mm-hmm. their mental state. Is, is such that they cannot accurately resent, represent themselves before yeah. a judge. They have to receive certain evaluations and then uh, mental health services, mm-hmm. you know, emergency mental health services, nothing right. exactly wraparound, but, mm-hmm. you know, go to Western State Hospital or something like that right, within right. a certain period of time. And so mm-hmm. 
you know, most of the people that we are talking about here, when we talk about high utilizers, mm-hmm. um, struggle with a lot of different things. Yeah. Um, m- most of them substance use, and then I, probably most of them uh, mental illness as well. Yeah, more, so, more than half of them is what is what Erica I know was was mentioning in her piece. But keep going, please. Right, which is I would I would I would gamble as a minimum. Um, yeah, right, right. And so then even if you even if you decide okay we're going to put all these people in jail, then um, you, you will come up against the reality that when they actually get to court, a lot of them are going to be deemed uh, not competent to stand trial, and they're going to yeah. they're going to need some kind of mental health uh, avenue, regardless of whether what happens here. So mm-hmm. you know. Um, but maybe there's a political consideration, which is that it's it's the you know the system who's doing this. It's not mm. the city of Seattle. It's not the city attorney's office. We tried everything we could, right? Uh, right. And and the federal court, you know, got in our way or whatever. But sure, uh, this is a, m- a more complicated question than just do they uh, you know get services or go to jail? Right. No, you're you're right, and that that True Blood decision is a very important one because the whole idea here is that. You should not be boarding people, essentially, to use the verb there loosely, but you should not be boarding these people who have mental health concerns in our jails. I, I think that's the bottom line for me there. And if you really start to to build on this and start extrapolating, it's something we've talked about at the city level for years. The, the services are not there for people who need those mental health services. And, uh, and that's a frustrating piece, too. But I, I guess just looking at this long term, David, the judge is now asking the city attorney's office to hold off on this discussion until July. They're going to try to work out some sort of plan for these high utilizers. But again, I, I think about this, what sort of plan is going to come out of this that provides a quote unquote answer? You know, I'm putting up the air quotes on that one an answer to what's been a decades old issue. Yeah, exactly. Um, I, I don't know. Um, and I, I think this is, if this was an easy, right. an easy problem, someone would have fixed it already. Um, yeah. Cause you know, I mean, again, you got to remember that the, a lot of these folks are, are determined to be high utilizers specifically because they have gone to jail a lot and they get out and then they go back to jail. So it's, um, it's, it's not, you know, it's not like a lot of these people have been, uh, have not been getting arrested and not been going to jail. In fact, part of the problem is they have been going to jail and they're getting out and then there's nothing for them on the other side. Uh, right. Nothing to sort of interrupt that cycle. And so, you know, I mean, um, yeah, so I don't know. It's not, it's not easy. No, no. I, I'm very interested to see what, what's going to come out of that, that interaction between the city attorney's office and the municipal court, because it sounds like a pretty rough uh, relationship right now. And those are two agencies that really do need to work together on something like this. So we'll see what shakes out with that one. But up next, we're going to talk about what's happening with Sound Transit's fare enforcement policies, especially with ridership really taking a dive during the pandemic. We're going to tell you how the board voted on this and why coming up on Transportation Talk. Well, David, you recently wrote in the Seattle Times about Sound Transit changing up its policy a little bit on fare enforcement, how fares are collected, how that's enforced. What happened? How did this vote go down? Yeah, this is um, has been you know three years in the making. This mm-hmm. vote um, kind of it dates back to 2019 when um, you know Sound Transit and uh, my colleague Heidi Gruber wrote about this. Um, you know, you looked at look at their fare enforcement data and found that. Um, black riders were, were not only more likely to be cited for not having a fare, they were much more likely to have those cases end up as misdemeanors because they're sort of a, it doesn't start as a misdemeanor, it starts as mm-hmm. a citation, but kind of graduates eventually up to becoming a misdemeanor. And so, 
you know, I think it was something like four times as many um, black writers were ending up with misdemeanors than white. And so it was an issue they wanted to kind of address. And um, I think it picked up even more steam in 2020 when there was a lot of conversations happening about race and and policing and enforcement. Sure. And so what they landed on, um, you know, a a lot of advocates were pushing for removing the avenue to the criminal justice system entirely. So making it so whatever citations or fines did exist would be entirely in-house. Um, that's not what happened. But what did happen is the, the board added another warning. So you get two warnings instead of one. Okay. On your, on your third time, you get a $50 fine. It's internal. Fourth time, you get a $75 fine, also mm-hmm. internal. And then only on your fifth time do you get the $124 civil infraction that if left okay. unpaid could lead to a misdemeanor. Got um, it. This is, this is quite a bit slower than the previous system, which after your first warning directly went to that civil infraction. I see. Um, yeah. But, but you know, there are a lot of, um, a lot of questions here because mm-hmm. for one, um, Sound Transit has found that almost nobody provides proper identification when they're mm-hmm. approached by a fair enforcement officer. Um, sure. And so if you have built a system based on warnings and, but nobody is giving you identification, there are real sure. questions around yeah. how you actually keep track of those warnings. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And despite this passing last week, they really did not have an answer to that. Oh, okay. Um, you know, the other thing is they have switched from fair enforcement through security guards to mm-hmm. this fair ambassador program. Right. Um, it's supposed to be kind of gentler and, and more mm-hmm. educational, but they just don't have the people right now. One yeah. statistic said the average writer is going to go 23 rides before they'll encounter wow. a fair ambassador. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not exactly like there's going to be much. Um, so, so if you think about, you can go 23 rides, you can go 23 rides without encountering a fair ambassador. And then you means- get, multiple warnings and multiple opportunities. Sure. You know, the, the, the question here that some of the critics of this policy have raised is, mm-hmm. you know, where is there really any incentive to pay fair at all? Uh, yeah. And, and, and I was thinking about that too, because this is an agency that hasn't been making a lot of money over the past couple of years with people not using transit as much, certainly because of the pandemic, they're trying to rebound back. And I just, uh, this seems to be a difficult way to get there, I guess, in terms of uh, revenue, at least for sound transit. Right. Yeah. And then, you know, I think um, it's, you know, it's not everything it's they're, they're it's roughly 6% of their total budget. Okay. Um, but it is, um, it is at one point, the goal was to make fair collection 40% of the operating budget. Mm, okay. um, they're nowhere near that. They're at 5% now, I think. And, wow. Um, since the pandemic, they've revised their, est- their um, what is it, till 2046, they revised yeah. their estimates of what they would make through fair collection down mm-hmm. from nine and a half billion dollars to six billion dollars. So it's mm. almost, you know, down by about a third. So it's, third, it is right. way off. But but then, you know, then I think some kind of advocates for this reform get into this question of, well, I mean, the, the problem then is not is, is really about the role of fair in the system at all um, mm. and 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 also this question of um you know how much of how much of what we're seeing as far as um decline in fair collection has to do with you know ceo peter rogoff talks a lot about people deciding not to pay when they get on the uh and kind of putting this as this personal responsibility question when mm-hmm. you know other other members of the board like claudia balducci and some advocates and things like that say mm-hmm. this is not really about sort of personal choice this is about a pandemic that has screwed up okay transit yeah. and transportation everywhere and yeah you know n- none of these kind of scary numbers around dropping fair collection get rid you know change the fact that 
it was a system that was objectively target, you know, objectively landing right. harder on one race than the other. And that's yeah. a problem. And um, so, you know, despite the consequences, um, the board decided that it's worth trying this new system in, in an effort to kind of lessen the harm that they saw being caused by the old fair enforcement system. Wow. It's going to, it's going to be very interesting to see how that plays out there. So thank you for that breakdown, David. I wanted to talk about one last piece here to wrap up. I saw a tweet from you last week that you actually got a voicemail from Mark Ruffalo. What happened? And I didn't, I didn't know you were so famous. What's going on? No, it was not Mark Ruffalo. Unfortunately, I, I got really excited when I read the transcript, but uh-huh. it was just my transcription software on oh. my voicemail uh, mistranscribed. It was the guy's name was Mark. And okay. then he had a last name that kind of sounded like Ruffalo a little oh, bit. Oh, come on, transcription actually, app. Let's go. Not here. actually Mark Ruffalo. <laughs> I was, well, I was, I was on the one hand disappointed because I like Mark Ruffalo. On the other hand, awesome. I, I had been waiting on a call back from this person for a while. So <laughs> I was happy to, I was happy. To I get see. I see. It's, it's okay. It wasn't, wasn't the Hulk on the other side. No, that's, no. That's all right. That's all right. Well, cool. Thank you, David, as always for joining me. And thanks everybody for listening here to Seattle News, Views and Brews, where you can always find out what's brewing in local politics. This podcast is available on all the major platforms. And once again, if you are a listener, please do support the show on Patreon. Greatly, greatly appreciated there. Thanks also for watching on Converge Media. We will see you next time. Seattle News, Views, and Brews is an independent production of Callanan Media Services. Copyright 2022.